Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of our Yes, I Am a Closer podcast. My name is Dominic Caminata, owner and co-founder of Garasi University. Hope everyone's having a fantastic day. I'm really excited about our guest here in this podcast. It's a guest that uh, I've talked to several weeks ago, and this has been one of my most anticipated podcasts that we've done to date. See, what's going on in the world right now is everybody is exposed to changes, challenges, and uncertainty And it's important that all of us have the mindset and also the will and determination and also the knowledge to be able to prevail during these trying times. And the guest on today's podcast, the story not only is an inspirational story and a story of the power of the made-up mind. You know, at Grass University, we always tie back to the Napoleon Hill quotes of whatever the mind of man can conceive or believe he will achieve. But it's also a good reminder that obviously life is short. And we're going to get hit by obstacles and challenges and curveballs all throughout life. And it's something that we all have to be prepared for. And obviously being able to prevail and overcome that stuff, a lot of it ties back to your state of mind. And again, refusing to give up. You know, I think about the quote from the Rocky movie. He said, you know, uh, nothing will hit as hard as life and life will beat you down and keep you there if you let it. Right. So being able to roll with the punches and be willing to fight back. And uh, so I really love this uh, gentleman's story. It's a story of inspiration. He's got quite the resume. Uh, He actually had his first solo flight when he was just 15 years old. And at a very young age, I'm talking when he could barely walk, he had a passion for aviation. And this passion transformed into this burning desire that basically allowed him to be the youngest person in history to have a solo flight around the world. And he's considered one of the top 50 greatest adventures in the history of Australia. And aside from having an amazing accent, (laughs) he's got one impressive story to tell. And he's also the author of a very incredible book, very inspiring book called Born to Fly. So we're very grateful to have him on the podcast here. Uh, So I'm pleased to introduce the one and only Mr. Ryan Campbell. (laughs) There we go. So I appreciate you being on the podcast here, Ryan. Um, Obviously, just based on the introduction there, you got a lot of uh, amazing things to share with our audience. And I truly mean it when I say, I mean, I think a story like yours is something that a lot of people need to be reminded of. Because, you know, one lesson that my mother always instilled in me, and you wouldn't think this would be the greatest lesson of all time, but she says, you know, Dominic, you know, life is going to throw you some curveballs, some challenges. But no matter how bad you think it is, just remember worse things have happened to better people. <laughs> and every now and then we got to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and of course prevail and move forward despite the odds being against us. But I kind of want to start at the beginning of kind of this burning desire that you had for aviation and how that transformed in you setting the record for the first solo flight around the world. You got a lot of advice from mums. I've got uh, I've got a little yeah. story I'll share with you later on. But uh yeah, so I was a six-year-old kid, um, standard Aussie family. I, I grew up on the beach. Um, my dad was a milkman. My mum was uh, a stay-at-home mum, and I had two older brothers. So we're pretty just middle-class standard family. Now, when I was six years old, uh, my whole family, we actually went overseas for the very first time. First time my mum and dad had ever set foot out of Australia. So I was six years old. Uh, I was destined to fly out of Sydney airport to an island in the Pacific called Vanuatu. And we were to do so on a Boeing 737. So we uh, traveled up to Sydney. We were so unbelievably excited the moment we saw the airport. And uh, we climbed onto that, uh, that Boeing 737. 
I always say being the cutest and being the youngest of the three boys, uh, I got the window seat. So uh, I sat at that window seat, we taxied out and we took off. Now, for me, it was as a young kid sitting in that seat, uh, feeling that uh, thrust of the, uh, the engines as they powered it up. And, and as we gathered speed down the runway, the whole airplane shaking. And then all of a sudden, everything just becoming silent as the airplane pitched up and, and flew up into the sky. Like, man, that whole experience for a, a young kid was just, you know, it was life changing. Yeah. And um, to see the size of the city from above, uh, to soar through the clouds, which I, really at that age, I, I didn't even know that was possible. Uh, but to then, uh, prior to September 11, showing my age, uh, to be invited up to the cockpit as one of the kids on the flight, to meet the pilots, to walk through that cockpit door, to see the buttons, to see the switches. Uh, man, that was it. I unlocked a passion. I'm very, uh, very lucky, I would say. Yeah, it makes me think, uh, you know, my uh, son, he's five years old and We've been taking him on flights actually since he's been like two years old. And my gosh, I mean, the level of excitement he has getting on that airplane and getting ready for takeoff now, especially being a five-year-old kid, it kind of reminds me of that, just what he's thinking, you know, flying up in the clouds and, you know, maybe that'll transform into a passion for him to fly. But he definitely uh, loves doing that. So I can definitely uh, understand that from a six-year-old kid just being in amazement. You actually said something in your book that it kind of got me thinking because if you fly a lot, eventually you just, it's kind of like going through the motions, right? You don't really take a second to realize how magnificent and what a miracle it is that this massive, I don't even know how much an airplane weighs, but this massive object is able to effortlessly take flight off a runway. I think I remember writing many, many, many years ago about that crying baby in 22C or whatever I said at the time. And, mm-hmm. and it was that, you know, aviation has been around for such a short period of time. Like this ability to just get in a flying machine. I love calling them flying machines and then just go up into the, the air. I mean, <laughs> Sunday morning, my girlfriend and I here in Tennessee climbed into my little airplane and we took off at sunrise, uh, a little two seat airplane. And we flew around Tennessee. We looked at the water and we landed at this little airstrip. We flew up a river and we were given an opportunity that morning uh, for honestly not a lot of money to climb into a flying machine and go flying. So if you think about how long that's been available to, to humans, man, like it's 75 years, really, realistically. So we are so incredibly lucky, but so quickly have we adapted from, oh my gosh, we can fly an airplane to, you know, there's a baby crying in 22C and, you know, what type of food am I going to get? And, you know, the seats on Frontier Airlines are way too hard. So it's, it's hard. we got to make sure we always keep it in perspective that we're just incredibly lucky to be able to uh, soar into the air, let alone travel the world. Yeah, you know, another thing in your book that, really stood out to me is something I never even realized at a very young age, you flew solo in an airplane and I didn't even know that it was possible to fly before getting a driver's license, much less, you know, being 15 years old. But how does that even happen where a 15 year old kid has a solo flight on his pretty much on your birthday? I think it was from six years old. I wanted to be a pilot. My uncle was a pilot. He had been a commercial pilot his whole life. So even with family in aviation, my granddad was a pilot when he was alive. So even with family in aviation, I did not know or discover through them that I could learn to fly at a young age. They had no idea because they weren't young, right? Uh, For me, it was wanting to learn to fly all the way up through high school that never, ever went away. It was deciding that I was going to do it and then having common sense say like, dude, you're going to have to have money to learn to fly and you're going to have to at least have a driver's license to learn to fly. That's common sense, right? So let's get out of high school. Let's get a job after high school and we'll learn to fly then. But 
man, one day I just walked into the kitchen at 14 years old at my mum and dad's house. And I sat down and I read the local newspaper that was sitting on the kitchen table, which I never, ever did. And honestly, I just flicked through it. And I come across a picture of a young kid sitting in an airplane and he had flown solo on his 15th birthday. Yeah. I was beyond jealous. You had to legally be 15 to fly solo. You could start learning with an instructor prior to that, but you had to be 15 to solo. So Man, I read that article. I was jealous. I was envious. I kept reading the article and replacing his name with mine, dreaming that I could do that. And that's what started it with that kind of, he, if he can do it, why can't I attitude? I, I found after school jobs and I funded my own flying lessons with the same goal in mind. And um, I did on, on my 15th birthday be uh, lucky enough to fly solo. And man, two weeks later, there was an article in the local newspaper again, but this time I didn't have to, to swap the name out because it was, you know, luckily <laughs> yeah. it was about me. So, Well, that's what, you know, as I'm going through your book and stuff, because obviously there's a lot of young kids that dream about stuff and they see some, maybe it's an article or story, or maybe it's an athlete that they look up to and admire as a role model or inspiration. Those thoughts cross your mind, but the way you were just so laser focused and the way you always made up your mind about these things to execute them so quickly it's just really unreal. It's unlike anything I've ever heard of. And, you know, I was, I think of myself as being pretty goal oriented, vision oriented, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to pursue my goals and, you know, there's obviously obstacles that come up, but man, from that young of an age, make up your mind, like your mind was made up entirely to, to obviously have that solo flight on the 15th birthday it has to start immediately didn't that didn't for me come from being goal orientated it didn't come yeah. from any form of mindset or approach to this all of that came as a byproduct of finding a passion yeah. and you know like i could get up and go to a flying lesson at 6 a.m i could save all my pennies and scrub dishes in a restaurant for four years to fund my my flight training and my license but if you told me i had to make my bed or go and run the, the cross-country event at school i always happened to be sick on that day you know i just wasn't i wasn't motivated even now i have things i struggle to do in life but when you find a passion that is a fast, rapid flowing river. And if you can jump in a, a blow up boat and sit in that fast moving river, you're going to go places. And um, that's exactly what I found within aviation. And as we'll talk about, I mean, it took me to the, the highest of highs and then it took me to the lowest of lows. And despite all of that, it, it is still my passion. So, Yeah, there's a, a guy that I actually work with and I'll definitely connect to you, but his name's Sean Foyer. He's a mindset coach. And what he does is he takes anomalies like what happened with you at a young age where you found that passion at a young age and you pursued it wholeheartedly how you literally program your subconscious mind to bring that very thing to you like no matter what it's 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 almost like you achieve that goal already the clock just hasn't caught up yet uh, when you truly have that burning desire for something uh, but it's almost like reprogramming your subconscious mind because we're running programs all day long but you clearly had such an emotional impact on that event or that article or such a passion, emotional attachment to flight that no matter what was happening, I mean, you just laser focused or gravitated towards that. Because again, you look at, you talk about human history, how aviation hasn't been around that long. I mean, I'm sure there's other 15 year old kids that thought about flying or maybe loved aviation. But to have that that made up mind that, holy cow, like, and obviously that article, I'm sure, accelerated the process there for you and opened up your eyes to how quickly this could occur for you. But yeah, it's still just incredible. And obviously transitioning that into now, I want to fly around the world. I guess, how did that pop into your head that that was all of a sudden another 
mission to, to be accomplished. You know, to fly solo on your 15th birthday. So the day that I was legally allowed was, I mean, everyone loved it except my mum. She was a nervous wreck. But um, at 15, I did that. And, and what it did is it showed me what I could do in life. If I had that courage and the commitment towards a goal that was somewhat realistic, uh, my dad would always tell me, you know, you can do anything you want provided your head screwed on right. If you want to strap uh, wings to your refrigerator and fly to the moon next week, that's probably not going to happen. But provided you have realistic goals, you pretty much can attain what you want with hard work and, you know, that, that commitment towards the goal. So at 15, I realized that, you know, you can hear about it all day. You can read about it in a textbook, but to truly experience what that was like was incredible. Uh, but it also wanted me, uh, it kind of gave me this new found desire to want to do everything I possibly could at the youngest possible age. So mm -hmm. when I was 16 years old, I passed another flight test that allowed me to take friends uh, and family flying in a, a kind of a restricted distance from my home airport. So at 16 years old, I was still a year away from being able to drive a car on my own, uh, but I could take people flying in the airplane. So I cut a deal with all my school friends. I was like, listen, you fly me from school to the airport, uh, sorry, drive me from school to the airport. I will take you flying, but you have to drop me home because I've got nowhere to get home otherwise. And um, that led to, to turning 17 to getting a private license and at 18, I had a commercial license. But I was always that kid who was wired to want more. I found the pioneering aviators of yesteryear just the most inspirational humans in the world to, to pave new pathways, to go out and achieve things that have never, ever been achieved by a human uh, in history. Like these guys and girls were just my heroes. And I read books about them and watched movies on them. I just loved what they had achieved. Now that pioneering spirit lingers on, but the opportunity to uh, break uh, records or achieve aviation first has obviously dwindled as as time goes on because a lot of those records have been broken or uh, those firsts have been achieved there was one however that hadn't been achieved and that was to fly solo around the world as a teenager so uh, again I read an article about a young guy who flew around the world at 23 uh, in 2008 the record prior to him at 23 had been 37 so there wasn't really an age record so clearly that's not something young kids even think about, right? Because the guy was almost 40 years old that hold the previous record. Uh, so obviously that right there shows you how rare this is. <laughs> and at that point in history, more people have uh, had gone to space and flown solo around the world. So this was a really kind of early on adventure uh, in, in a modern day world. And when Barrington Irving, the gentleman who broke the record at 23, completed his trip, I was so unbelievably inspired about how he pulled it off, how he uh, found the airplane, built the airplane and, and flew it around the world. And we're talking a single engine, tiny little four seat airplane. Yeah. And um, I was 17 years old. I had a private pilot's license. I wasn't very good at mathematics, but I knew that I had six years to make this happen if I wanted to break the record and become the youngest. But then we discovered that if I was to fly around the world at 19, I would be cre creating an aviation first. It could never, ever go away. And that's, I, I fell so in love with that idea. And man, like I told you about my normal family, you know, yeah. I, I actually kept the planning of the round the world flight. And we could talk about this for hours. Mm -hmm. I kept the planning of the round the world flight a secret. I didn't tell my parents, my brothers, my best friends. Yeah. I actually contacted one of Australia's most famous individuals. Um, he's a, a, a businessman, an entrepreneur. He's a household name, a politician. He's also a round-the-world pilot and an aviation adventurer. So I contacted this gentleman, Dick Smith, all through the use of Google and Googling how to get to this human. And um, I asked him for help. Uh, he basically told me that what I wanted to achieve was so unbelievably dangerous. Uh, it had never been done before. It was expensive. 
uh, it was risky. But at the end of that email, after all of the challenging elements were explained, he said uh, just a few words that changed everything. He said, but it can be done. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, that was it. From that point on, it was, what is it going to take? And it, it took a lot. Like just to be in a position to take off and attempt that trip <laughs> was like two years of just growth and discovery and learning opportunities and getting knocked down and having to get back up again. And yeah. you know, we, we fundraised a quarter million dollars on a laptop computer that my brother bought me because he was, he was the one who had money at the time to, to be able to plan the trip, uh, you know, help me plan the trip. So Yeah, because that's just it. I mean, we're not only talking about how profound it is that a teenager is has that in his mind that it, I'm going to have fly around the world in, you know, before I turn 20 in just a couple of years time, try to plan this out. And obviously you can tell at the beginning of the journey, you didn't even, you knew it was going to be really hard, but then you didn't realize how many different obstacles and challenges and these heartbreaks and then these crazy most is like emotional roller coaster for you because obviously you had to plan out the 24,000 miles the 35 different stops and you had to pick a specific date and lord willing it worked out that you could fly that date and raise that quarter of a million dollars and find a plane and someone that can trust you to fly rent the plane and fly it around the world as a teenager and i understand there was some hardship there but you just kept prevailing one after the other and it seemed like okay all hope is lost and then all of a sudden, boom, you push right back and you overcome it again. And obviously it was from your mindset, but also you weren't the only one that believed in that. You had quite the support team behind you that also believed in you as well. Yeah, I had, I had an incredible team that I honestly, we built that over a long period of time. Yeah. And wanting to do something for the right reason was the reason that we had a support team. You know, it yeah. wasn't for ego. It wasn't for story. It wasn't for media. It wasn't for any that uh, was purely for you know going out there and, and and seeing what i could do seeing what we could do as a team it was to create some history but more importantly to inspire and encourage other people to pursue these kind of crazy out their dreams that they have in their head and you know even yeah as you say getting an airplane and again we could talk for hours about it yeah you know there were some serious moments in that two years that absolutely knocked me down but at the end of the day one thing mattered and that was right uh, in the beginning before we went to the public and said, Hey, we, I'm going to fly around the world. And this is what we're going to do. Uh, I sat down with my flying instructor who taught me to fly from the beginning. His name's Alan Lindsay or big Al. And I sat down with big Al and I said, Al, what am I doing? You know, I'm 17 years old and, and am I getting myself into too much here? And he said to me, uh, you need to break it down. You know, we need to step right back, stop looking at all the little details that confuse you on a day-to-day -day basis, step right back, pretend you're at 20,000 feet, look at the big picture you need to make a yes or no decision as to whether you're going to pursue this or not. If you say yes, once you've weighed up all the pros and cons, if you say yes, you do not give up until the day that it either is a success or B, it is a failure to the point where it just cannot be recovered. He said, but if you say no, you walk away from it. You find something else to pursue, some, whatever it does. You take up knitting. It doesn't matter, but you don't go back <laughs> to this. And it was this really big moment in life where we obviously said yes. And so every time that we got knocked down, whether we're sitting in the middle of Kansas in a brand new suit, knocking on the world's largest aircraft uh, manufacturer's door to ask for an airplane or whether it be, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, every time we were knocked down, we just went back to that yes and no decision. And I said, yes. So I had to find a way to keep going. And, and that was to build that mindset and to build that experience uh, in the moment to prove to yourself that you could overcome the most incredible challenges that were thrown at you 
gives you the confidence and the tools and the knowledge of how you can overcome the next challenge. And in some ways, every challenge become a little bit easier because you had the experience of the previous, um, you know, challenges before it. So, yeah, just the way you overcame fear. And obviously there's a lot of uncharted territory, not just the, the flight around the world being uncharted territory for you, but just all the different things that needed to occur for that, that dream to happen. Yes, yeah, very inspiring story. And I'm sure people are listening wondering now, how does a, a young kid that sets a world record for aviation and kind of fulfilled his dream and his desire, how does that translate into being turbulent tough, right? So obviously one of the big messages that that you're spreading throughout the world right now and it's something that is going to be, you know, potentially a, a huge future for you is spreading this message of turbulent tough. And this kind of ties back into us being, you know, prepared. We're going to have, you know, they call it headwinds of change or the obstacles and challenges and accidents and things happen. So kind of how, how did this story of this amazing story of aviation turn into a conversation of overcoming adversity and challenge? Yeah, hundred percent. So um, here's a real quick recap of the whole story. So we've decided to fly around the world. We spend two years planning, fundraising that quarter of a million and, and equipping a single engine airplane to be able to fly around the world. The shortest leg was 20 minutes. The longest leg was 15 hours nonstop in a single engine airplane, 160 gallons of fuel mounted inside the cockpit with me in a big bag of fuel. So we're not flying a normal little airplane. Like we are, we're on an adventure. Yeah. Um, all the way across the Pacific, across North America, all the way up to the top of the world, over the North Atlantic, through Iceland, down in the Scotland, all through Europe, uh, through the Middle East, uh, diverting around different places because of crisis and you know political upset and all this stuff, mm. um, all the way down through the Middle East into Asia, uh, all the way back down into Australia. And eventually after 70 days, and as you mentioned, 24,000 miles, we had successfully flown solo around the world. Yes, we'd broken a record, but at that point, it just really didn't matter. Uh, it was all about the impact that that flight had on not just me, but those around us. So we're flying around the world. And as a 19 year old kid, I'm sitting there wondering what's next, you know, well, life was super cool at that point because I'm just going and, and sharing my story on the speaking circuit in Australia. Yeah. Uh, all these incredible things are happening, meeting the Royals, you know, like, you know, your life has taken a unique turn when you're standing face to face with, you know, Prince William and you're having a conversation with him, with him about aviation, but, but that's not, and you can see here on the photo with him, that's not the story or the lesson that I took from that night. It wasn't about meeting Prince William. It was about being a normal 19 year old kid, despite what I'd been through that didn't want to eat any of the funky food at the reception and left meeting the Royals climbed into his car and drove in that suit to KFC and sat there and ate fried chicken as they cleaned the floor underneath my feet at KFC <laughs> uh, at 1130 at night. So yeah, that's kind of the story. You almost look like a secret service agent there. If you had a little earpiece, right? Yeah. <laughs> you clean up yeah, it was a really, it was quite the formal event, but um, the, whatever it may be, you mentioned being named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. You know, I don't make my bed. How did I make that list? You know, and uh, life was incredible. On the 28th of December, 2015, so we're talking two years after the end of the Round the World flight, uh, we'd written a book, Born to Fly was out there. The story was doing incredible things and, and I was pursuing my career as a pilot. That's what I wanted to be more than anything. Uh, that passion hadn't wavered. Uh, if anything, it had, it had gotten stronger. Uh, but on the 28th of December, 2015, I went to work. It was just, a, it was a normal day. Uh, my job was to, to fly a vintage biplane built in the 1930s 
and to fly that uh, airplane with one passenger at a time up and down the coast of Australia, do some light aerobatics if it was requested and, and basically allow these people to have an incredible experience, something that I got to experience so often. And um, it was an incredible job. It was a beautiful old airplane. Uh, I was very lucky. On that day, however, we weren't lucky. Uh, we took off uh, of a, out of a grass runway in Australia uh, early morning for what was meant to be a 25-minute flight. Uh, as we lifted off the runway, we had no oceans to cross, no records to break. Uh, you know, we were just going for a beautiful fly. Uh, we had an engine failure and we had an engine failure at low level. And despite what I could do uh, in the best of my abilities, the outcome uh, as I tried to find a place to put that airplane down was, was not a good outcome. Uh, doing everything I could, we ended up in a very serious accident. Uh, so serious that I was actually cut out of that airplane and airlifted to hospital as the only survivor. So uh, I think at that point, I don't know what you say about that. Um, And my job is to talk about it. Yet every time I talk about it, it never gets easier. So they airlifted me to hospital. Uh, I had five breaks in my back. I had shattered facial bones. I had almost a removed right ankle. Uh, They operated on me and put me all back together and they took me to a a recovery ward where I I woke up um, very aware that something was very wrong. And that was the fact that I hadn't just been in an accident and had all these broken bones, but I had damaged my spinal cord. Uh, I was uh, diagnosed a complete paraplegic from L1 down. So no movement or feeling below my waist. Um, And that was it, mate. Like everything that, had given me my identity, which was aviation, had now been the very thing that took it all away. And my life in a split second moment on a normal day went from incredible to absolute horror. I'm not even sure how else to explain it. Yeah, well, and this is obviously those reminders that sometimes we all need is, you know, no matter how invincible you think you are or how great everything is perceived to be, that can all change in the blink of an eye. I mean, not just an airplane, but you could be driving down the highway and someone falls asleep behind the wheel or, you know, a million other different examples of that. And, you know, it's one thing to have that happen to you and have it completely break your life forever. But it's another thing to understand that accidents happen. That's why they call them accidents and not on purposes, like my dad always told me. And we have to obviously grow and learn from those and figure out a way to move forward. And obviously it's easier said than done, but that's what I'm hoping that your story does to the viewers watching this is it makes it reminds them, first of all, life is short, can change in the blink of an eye. Curveballs are going to happen. You're going to have challenges. You're going to have obstacles. Obviously the severity is different for everyone, but now how do we pick ourselves up against this turbulence that you're describing and continue to move forward? And I'm guessing when that happened that I'm sure there's some medical professional or some doctor that maybe alluded to you having a hard time ever walking again and certainly never flying again. You know, they, they label a spinal cord patient A, B, C, or D. It's called an Asia score, A being the, the worst, so the most damage, and D being the best, D and E being the best. Uh, incomplete is you still have a little bit of function. Complete is you don't have any function below the damage. And I was complete Asia A. Uh, and they built me a wheelchair and it was um, evident from relatively soon after the accident that 
hopefully I would get something back, but the thought of ever walking again was, was slim. The thought of ever flying again was even slimmer. And, and I spent six months in hospital. I spent a year and a half in rehabilitation um, going through that process. And the recovery for me was honestly miraculous. It was a lot of hard work and determination and, and a lot of luck as to how I damaged my spinal cord. And um, I can now tell you after a year and a half of rehabilitation that I walk and no, I look like I've had too many Tennessee whiskeys, but I walk. <laughs> well, you're living in the right spot. Everyone's used to that in Nashville, right? <laughs> um, obviously you have the points I'm sure where you just kind of want to give up hope or whatever, but then also something in, cause to me, when I look at that recovery time, that's pretty dang quick in my opinion to get out of the hospital with that level of injury and then to be rehabilitated or at least be able to walk again in a year and a half. So clearly there had to be some decision that you made like a, where it's like, you know what, um, no matter what happens, this is my next mission in life is to get back up and get in that airplane. And I don't know if, if that was even crossed your mind early when you were in the hospital and it first happened or if that was more after the fact. Well, the first month or six weeks, I didn't want to hear, see or know anything about an airplane. Right. I'm and sure. that quickly went to how can I get out of this hospital and get in an airplane? And, and I actually... Uh, took myself out on a weekend leave. I caught a cab. I caught a train. The train broke down, ended up getting on a bus and riding the bus for the rest of the trip in my wheelchair with my crutches between my legs and my bag on my knees, uh, determined to go on my own without my parents. And they, uh, the, an organization lifted me out of that wheelchair and they placed me into an airplane and they took me flying. And that was before I had left um, wow. hospital in that six month stay. So I was determined to get back in the air and, and walking was in my mind, merely a stepping stone on the way back to the cockpit uh, and to flying. Um, but for me, there was one pivotal moment. And again, I mean, we can't share it all here, but this is what I love about my job is being given the opportunity to share these stories and mm -hmm. to talk about real life as opposed to a textbook. You know, I, I'm a normal Aussie kid anymore, laid back. I'd be lying down. That's why I always tell people, you know, I, I did not, I am not a mindset coach. Uh, I did not go to college to study that. I have kind of, as some would say, come from the school of hard knocks. And um, there was one pivotal moment for me, which I think, and I speak about this one story with a lot of passion because I was in hospital and I was in a really bad way. You know, we could talk about it all day, but there's always someone watching me. And, and I was, you know, you think that I was up against a, a physical challenge. I was, but I was really up against a mental challenge. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that learning to walk was a mental challenge. Yeah. Um, they took me out of the bed and they put me in a wheelchair for the very first time, quite, quite some time after the accident. When I was finally able to get in that wheelchair, they took me to the rehabilitation gym and that was a place where quadriplegics and paraplegics were doing everything they could every day, multiple sessions to bring their bodies back to life, to find their new maximum potential, right? And it was a very inspiring, but also sad room full of perspective to be in. And I remember going into that room the very first time feeling sorry for myself. They lifted me out of the uh, wheelchair with a sling. Um, I'm not so sure if you've ever seen a cow be lifted in a sling. Uh, yeah, you can see that on. Yeah. It's exactly what I looked like. It was a very non-flattering experience, but they lifted you out of the wheelchair and they placed you down on a bed. And my physiotherapist told me that day that my first challenge was going to be rolling over. And I remember laying on my back and going, all right, I love a challenge, right? How am I going to take myself from lying on my back to lying on my stomach? And I looked out at my lifeless legs and I thought, I have a plan. If I could just lift one of my chunky legs up and lie it over the other one and basically twist the bottom half of my body, I could then reach over and grab the side of this bed and pull. And that would 
untwist me, I would end up lying on my stomach and I would be victorious, right? In this first challenge. So I was like, bring it on, let's do it. So I twisted my bottom half of my body and I pulled, but I had five breaks in my back and a whole bunch of metal. And so what that did is it, the pain was so much, I had to stop on my side. Mm -hmm. And I remember resting on my side and my right arm was all twisted. And I remember looking through a small uh, hole that was kind of created um, under my arm. And what I saw through that gap changed my entire life. And it was a guy named Ben. Ben had slipped over, mopping his girlfriend's floor. He'd hit, uh, hit his head. He'd broken his neck. He was in his early 30s. He was now a quadriplegic with no movement or feeling from his chest down, very little movement or feeling in his arms. And Ben was in a really big wheelchair, right? He was in a really bad way. Mm-hmm. And when I looked up at Ben, Ben was looking at me. And we didn't say anything to each other, but we didn't have to. Because I was lying on that bed feeling sorry for myself, sad that I couldn't fly, uh, let alone walk, let alone go to the bathroom like a normal human. My life was very different and still is. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking up at Ben, realizing in that moment what he would have given for just one chance at rolling over. Right. And man, like to say that I felt like the worst human on the face of the planet was an understatement. So they put me back in that wheelchair and they took me back to the hospital ward. Uh, Now my body was resting, but like that night, my mind was just going at a million miles an hour. And, and I knew that it was how I felt in that moment, looking at Ben, even though I couldn't quite explain how I felt that I would need to hold on to and remember, because it was that feeling that was going to get me through all the challenges that would have come. And I knew being in spinal rehabilitation more that there were some hard days ahead. Right. So I decided that night, to come up with some form of system that would allow me to kind of tangibly track progress above my shoulders, Mm -hmm. right? Life's one and lost above my shoulders. So I needed to come up with something that could track my growth in my mental health and my mindset, because here's the problem. You can go to the gym every day and work on your body and you can see a twitch of a toe or a twitch of a muscle, the movement of a leg or increased strength in, in some form of exercise. That is what inspires you to go back to the gym the next day because progress is the antidote to change induced stress, right? So progress is the antidote to change induced stress. Now, Every time I was seeing progress, it made me feel good, but I wasn't seeing progress regardless of who I spoke to, how many people wanted to help me, how many sessions, man, I used to go to the psychologist and I used to tell her how she felt. It was just not my, like I had so many people wanting to help me. I was like the deer in the headlights and, and I couldn't seem to get order in the chaos above my head, mm-hmm. uh, above my shoulders in my head. So that night I came up with this basic elementary concept called the mindset toolbox and it was like, all right, we're all born with this toolbox, right? Most of us don't use it. It's in the attic. It's all covered in dust. We need to get it out. But we have this big toolbox. When we're born, it's empty. It's got lots of drawers. It's got wheels on it. So we take it with us wherever we go in life. Now, the whole aim of life is to take the moments that we experience, unpack them, extract all of the tools and the lessons out of that one moment, and then place them in this toolbox. So what we're doing is we're taking an easily forgettable moment extracting the tools out of it we're placing it in an unforgettable drawer that drawer we have access to that 24 hours a day seven days a week and these tools are what allow us to tackle change challenge crisis and adversity and it's filling that toolbox that allows us to as i would say build a reservoir of resilience and become turbulence tough right to have the mindset and the tools the systems required to ride out life's roughest bumps ben allowed me to create something that I then took very seriously all throughout hospital, all throughout the rest of now my life up until now, not only have I filled it with tools 
that I experienced in the moment after that accident. But I've actually sat down uh, with a Jack Daniels whiskey and I've thought about all those uh, moments from the round the world flight. Uh, Jack Daniels is my uh, one of my dream speaking clients, by the way. It's bad. I'm, I'm an Australian at heart. Nothing wrong with that, um, <laughs> wrong with that at all. Uh, I... I looked back and I looked at all the lessons I'd experienced, all the uh, moments that had been a part of my life prior to the accident, the round the world flight. And I started to notice that although I'd learned little lessons here and there, I truly hadn't unpacked the moments and, and pulled every lesson from them. So I wasn't operating efficiently. I wasn't as resilient or as turbulence tough as I had the potential to be. I wasn't operating at my maximum potential. And that process of going back and really kind of you know, debriefing life to make sure that we're as resilient and as ready as we can be for tomorrow was what changed my entire existence. Let me tell you one more thing before you talk about that, because I want to tell you my mum's story. Yeah. Once I realized that that was where my life was going to go, was filling this toolbox. And that was what was going to allow me to sink, uh, to not sink, but swim. Uh, and that that was what was going to allow me to climb the mountains ahead of me. I sat down with my mum. I remember wheeling my wheelchair into the cafeteria one morning and my mom never left my side the whole time that I was in hospital. She never left. And I remember wheeling in there and it was just normal life. Like we lived at the hospital, you know, mom lived uh, in a hotel just across the road and we we're having breakfast together that morning before I went down to the rehabilitation gym. And I wheeled in, I said, mom, I said, um, I'm pretty sure I've worked out how I'm going to get through this. And she was so excited and hopeful. You could see it in her eyes because she thought I'd come up with something that was going to really help me at this point. And I was really struggling. I said, I'm going to really toughen the hell up. That was my response to her. I'm, I'm going to toughen up. And I think she was almost a little disappointed because it wasn't some kind of like golden nugget that was going to solve all my problems. But what I'd realized was there was no golden nugget to solve my problems. Mm -hmm. Getting through adversity, which adversity is a byproduct of breathing, right? It doesn't matter whether it's a spinal cord injury or a six-year-old kid falling over and grazing their knee to get through resilience, just to live, you know, to be able to have a life where we sit at the beach or we drive around a pink Cadillac, which is a whole nother story or whatever the, um, <laughs> you know, whatever the moments are that we long for in life to live that dream life. We have to be able to deal with the byproduct of that dream life, which is resilience. So, by understanding that building a mindset, filling a mindset toolbox, however you want to track your growth above your shoulders, by understanding resilience and adversity, the opportunity within it, and by committing to uh, building that level of resilience, you know, within you is what is going to allow you to not just overcome incredible challenges, right? Tomorrow's roughest storms of, you know, whether it be, as you say, anything can happen, right? It could be cancer. It could be a family, losing a family member. It doesn't matter what it is. Not only will that uh, reservoir of resilience allow you to overcome that, but even maybe more importantly, it'll give you the confidence to go and pursue those crazy out there dreams that you always thought weren't, weren't possible. You know, like what's your version of flying solo around the world? You know, what's your biggest, wildest, most crazy out there dreams? So, there are no negatives to it. Um, becoming turbulence tough and, and understanding that the tough times are opportunity is uh, honestly what allowed me to to change my life and to to kind of climb back to to be where I am today. So, yeah, story is so incredible in so many ways. It's hard to unpack it all. Like I said, in one sitting, this is something we could talk about in a, a full course for like three weeks. <laughs> but uh, you know, obviously, a lot of the the start of any journey is just beginning. You know, just to taking that first step. 
Uh, but you know that whole my, the whole concept of the, the the toolbox, the mental toolbox, where you're being deliberate about your life. Because obviously, if you just let your your subconscious mind or your conscious mind just drift off, and you're just in the the nuances of the day to day, the the habitual things that we get involved in, we rarely take time in a relaxed state. And this, in a positive way, is what this experience allows you to do is in a relaxed state, maybe without the distractions, the busyness of the day-to-day life, you're able to really just sit there and be with your thoughts and try to be deliberate about unpacking these experiences in life and these lessons learned and put them in the proper locations and the proper parts of the toolbox. But how does one you know, begin that process? Those of the, the viewers that are watching to say, you know, I really like what I'm hearing and it sounds great. You know, what's what's what would you say is step one for me to, to begin unpacking these lessons and trying to build out this this reservoir of resilience? The first thing is understanding adversity. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just got to actually sit back and think about life as a whole for a moment. Go back to like Big Al taught me, go back to 20,000 feet, look at where you are, where you've been, where you want to be and look at, look at your situation, right? Now, we are the byproduct of all the experiences that we've ever experienced in life up until this very moment. And I will add this conversation and, you know, the conversations that you and I have had to to my mindset toolbox and I will pull things out of that. So we have to just sit back before we even start to, you know, build toolboxes and extract moments and all that stuff. Just understand adversity, be open to uh, accepting that the tough times that we face in life are the learning opportunities at, at 22 years old, I was in a hospital, you know, facing this whole daunting mountain of learning to, to, to walk again and then hopefully getting back into the cockpit. But I'd also been to the top at the round the world flight. And it's really easy to kind of, I was, I was given an, an opportunity to compare the highs and the lows, the highest of highs of, you know, meeting the Royals or whatever that may be and, and seeing the whole world from a tiny airplane, you know, that experience was what allowed me, it gave me the context to then see, all right, well, I went to the top and then I went to the bottom. Where did I truly learn? Like what truly made Ryan Turbulence tough? It wasn't flying around the world. It taught me a lot of cool things, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but it was it was being kicked to the curb that was the true learning opportunity. So my advice to anyone is to sit back and really think about how you view adversity right now, the challenges in your life. Do you avoid them? in the same way that most people do? Do you look at change and, and hate the very thought of it? Uh, or do you uh, happily accept that as part of life, a byproduct of breathing and a learning opportunity? Once you've done that, uh, you really just need to sit down and, and grab a pen and paper. This is elementary. This yeah. is not, you know, I'm not going to give you some 900 step formula to, mm-hmm. you know, that you need to, you know, to, to know calculus to be able to get through. This is simple. What it is, as you say, is is giving you, it forces you to dedicate the time to unpacking the moments in life because otherwise we just don't do it, right? We just move forward, life's fast paced, uh, especially these days. The process of unpacking a moment in time uh, and pulling every lesson from it and brainstorming the, the learning opportunities like I did with Ben, man, at surface level, Ben taught me perspective, right? Oh, I'm lucky I'm not a quadriplegic, right? But when I really pulled it apart, there were so many lessons. Ben wanted me to focus on what I had remaining physically as, a, as opposed to what I'd lost, right? right? He made me realize that my my ability to adapt was a gift, 
right? Some people don't even get the ability to adapt from a physical point of view. Uh, that was a gift. There were so many lessons he had shown me and, and the most powerful being that I was lucky to be a paraplegic. Man, if you ever thought that you were going to be in a position in life where you were lucky to be a paraplegic, you know, that's some serious above the uh, shoulders stuff and some serious perspectives. So um, sit down and understand adversity, find uh, some uh, a quiet space and, and time, grab a pen and paper and sit down and start to write out the big moments in your life. And, um, you know, and you'll quickly find some pretty incredible truths that you've you've missed. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I really appreciate sharing that story. And so, you know, you think about all the things you had to overcome and finding inspiration and in that story with with Ben and obviously having that that whole epiphany, uh, you know, thinking I need to toughen up. Now, how does that transition, I guess, how did that transition take place then to getting out of the hospital and eventually getting back into the point where you're flying again? I think not just airplanes, but helicopters, right? I wanted nothing like, more than to get back in going? the air. And, and I had a commercial um, pilot's license. I was obviously working as a pilot and uh, my dream was to fly for the airlines. And um, the recovery and the rehabilitation phase was very long. Uh, but I remember when I was still on crutches, getting around pretty, you know, pretty slowly. I can tell you, I still get around slowly, but I was pretty rough at this point. I had uh, some family friends put me in a helicopter that they actually owned. They operated this helicopter and used to, they actually put out fires with it. And um, they took my crutches off me at the door and they sat me up in this helicopter and they said, move your feet. The nature of the injury of my legs and feet, I still can't feel any of my feet, the backs of my legs. I've got no calf muscles, no glute muscles, my bladder and all internal functions are gone. The strength in my feet is gone in every way, shape and form. There's plenty of things still wrong with me, um, but they could see an opportunity to, to potentially operate uh, helicopter pedals. Uh, whereas I couldn't really operate most aeroplane pedals anymore. So I couldn't go and fly as a commercial pilot in aeroplanes, but they saw this opportunity. And sure enough, I could operate the helicopter pedals. And we went through a really long process of convincing our uh, regulatory body of aviation that I could fly a helicopter uh, as an incomplete paraplegic. And then I went on to, uh, with a lot of support, learn to fly a helicopter. And, and I went from incomplete paraplegic, having never flown a helicopter to commercial helicopter pilot in six weeks uh, of full-time training. And um, that journey back to flying, not just flying, obviously the helicopters, but flying privately. And there's a, a clip here of my little airplane called Doug. He's got special brakes. His name's Doug the Piper Cub. Um, that was the airplane that allowed me to get back into the sky in Australia. Um, but it's also the airplane that I actually took the wings and the engine off and I shipped it to America. And that's the airplane that I was flying around Tennessee on Sunday morning. So he's named after a double amputee, famous World War II fighter pilot that you know, uh, he was turbulence tough, I can tell you. So yeah, the journey was back to the air and I'm glad to say that we, we made it there and I'm, I'm, I'm proud and, and glad to be back in the sky. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, just thinking about your mom and all this, I mean, I saw her, uh, some clips of her in the 60 minutes interviews when you're flying around the world and just her, her support for your, your mission. Right. And the way she's always believed in you. I mean, that's something that's priceless in itself when you have that person in your corner like that that is just giving you unconditional love and support and not just through the travel around the world. I mean, that's scary as it is, but then obviously to see your son in the hospital, be at his bedside and help, you know, the road to recovery and then encourage you to keep pursuing your dream of aviation, no matter what, like uh, it, that alone, what your mother has done too, is just so inspiring. I mean, 
all you parents watching that have kids, like take some notes. <laughs> Holy cow. It, it truly is remarkable. Um, so hearing that. So yeah, incredibly lucky and, and incredibly blessed to have a, a support team and a great family. And one thing I will say as incredible as that is, some people have brought that up with me and said, well, hey, is that what allowed? As humans, we always want to look at someone who's achieved or overcome. We want to find excuses right. as to why we can't do what they did, right? And the first excuse is money. I can't afford it. Well, you know, I've got stories about that and and the way we funded the flight and everything's to the point of like, okay, that excuse is gone now. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's... I can tell you now that if you go about something the right way, mm-hmm. uh, you do it for the right reasons. If you have great you know, foundation of morals and values and, and it doesn't matter whether you want to achieve something great or you need to overcome something terrible, you will find people in your corner. Um, I truly believe that, you know, courage and commitment to take on anything, um, be it good or bad uh, is what allowed me to, to find myself here today and um, yes. you know, to get to chat. So. Now, obviously, I'm sure what some of the viewers are wondering, you know, the, the story of flying around the world in Australia, and you, there's a lot of Australian um, aviation uh, stories that inspired you and stuff. Now, how does this transition occur now where you're living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm still waiting to hear the little Nashville accent? Because <laughs> uh, we, we were just down in Nashville for our second annual closers camp uh, where they had that crazy winter storm in February, like one of the worst in 35 years, I guess, which, you know, was a, a, an obstacle we had to try to overcome. But how does one end up in Nashville, um, obviously now pursuing this role, uh, spreading this message across the world, and of course, trying to, to live this different life? First off, I never wanted to be a speaker, whether it was after Around the World Flight or after um, the accident. I, I never wanted to be a speaker. I wanted to be an airline pilot. That was my passion since I was six years old. Why would I want to go and stand on a stage and you know, and tackle public speaking? Um, but I was flying the helicopter one day during one of my lessons. And I, as mentioned, I can't feel my feet. So I was flying along and I ended up finishing my whole day of flying. I jumped in my car and I went down to the shop to buy some food for dinner. And I was with my dad and I said, I feel something funny in my foot, which is odd because I normally couldn't feel it. I took off my shoe and found a rock in my shoe that had been there all day. And it had actually eaten into my foot and my shoe was full of blood. So that put me back into hospital. And then it put me into a wheelchair for two months. And that was the point in life where I thought, you know what, Ryan, physically, you're not in the greatest shape. Um, And more than that, however, there was a message that was far greater than my unwillingness to share it. And I thought, you know what, this, this is something that I can do good with. And I truly sold everything that I owned. And I said goodbye to my parents. I left Australia. I left my mum at the airport on mother's day. Um, (laughs) and I left and I, I came to America and, and, um, with COVID and everything else that's come along, there's been just continuous mountains to climb here. I can tell you too, it just never seems to stop, but um, turbulence tough and, and the mindset toolbox, kind of this idea of sharing that with not just um, teams in corporate America and, you know, which we love doing and, but with anyone, podcasts, individuals, you know, we're here to share the story and we're here to help others with it. And, and um, I now live in Tennessee and my partner, Rachel is uh, a Tennessee girl. And uh, we have this dream of, you know, uh, three quarters of the year here and a quarter in Australia when it's too cold here. We don't want any of these Nashville ice storms ever again. I did not enjoy that. Um, I need to be at the beach. But yeah. that journey and that moment in the helicopter, I think, is what has led me to what I now believe is my true calling in a way, which uh, I never thought this would be what I was doing. I just wanted to be an old 
grumpy retired airline pilot at 65. But um, I truly believe we're now in a position to uh, practice what we preach, push extremely hard through the turbulence, um, you know, a lot of unexpected turbulence with COVID and continue to deliver this message to other people, proving that building your reservoir of resilience, taking time to invest in your uh, mindset and life above your shoulders. I, I really believe that that's what's going to allow people to overcome and achieve some pretty incredible things. And um, I'm also here for the fried chicken and the proximity. To the <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the thing I can tell you is, you know, your, your story is, it's so authentic and so real and so heart touching and obviously full of inspiration, but full of reality that, I mean, as soon as I started, Cody, um, our marketing director, was the one that first uh, did some research because he actually lives in Appleton, Wisconsin, right by Oshkosh, where they have the biggest aviation air show on the planet Earth. Um, so he was really excited to bring you on. And then when we started talking to you and hearing more about what you know the real story is, I mean, you can't help but just be moved by it. And you know, we all have those moments, those days where kind of we feel sorry for ourselves and kind of like when you're looking under your arm and you saw Ben there, you know, we all have days where we need to be reminded like, hey, you know, why am I sorry for myself? Pick yourself up, you know, toughen up, Dominic, or whatever it is, and just keep moving forward. Uh, and that's what your story, I mean, as soon as I heard about what happened to you and how you've prevailed and how you're pursuing this new dream of public speaking, it actually, in a big way, inspired me instantly. And that's why I know like the message that you're teaching, especially with the toolbox and how to, you know, go through that exercise. And of course, building the, the resilient reservoirs, that stuff instantly, I know will inspire anybody that has a pulse. Uh, so, so I, you know, I have big expectations for, for what you're going to achieve here. And did I, did I hear you correctly last time we talked? Did, did we allude at possibly like an engagement or a wedding or something like that? I don't want to spread any fake news or anything. <laughs> that, um, that stuff is definitely on the horizon for me. I'm a very lucky man. But um, yeah, I mean. Very happy for you. I've got a girl and if she ran away from me, I could never catch up. So she seems to uh, stick around by my side, which is great. And, and we do. One thing I always want to say is, you know, we talk about toughening up and, you know, I've had a lot of tough love in my life, which put me into this position where I am right now. And, you know, we're not here to belittle anyone's problems. You know, adversity is not a competition. Uh, the six-year-old, again, who falls over and grazes his knee has just the same emotions running through his mind and needs just the same advice to overcome it than what somebody who is now a quadriplegic, a paraplegic or lost a loved one. Adversity is not a competition. And I'm not here to tell people that um, I worked in corporate America for 30 years because I'm 27 and that would be an incredibly huge lie. <laughs> you know, my life is not that. Um, once you establish a firm foundation, a place to put your tools in life, everyone that you come across uh, after that point, every uh, teacher, every adult with a story, you know, a World War II veteran at Cracker Barrel who is eating alone and you sit and have a conversation with, every book you read, social media posts you look at, uh, every keynote speaker you hear, you will better utilize and more efficiently utilize the lessons that they're teaching you. So I'm not here to give you, uh, you know, fish for the rest of your life. I'm here to teach you how to fish and, and build that reservoir. And, you know, that's, hopefully something that I can provide to the people out there and make a difference. So I want you to know what I know without having to experience what I experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the way you explain it is, 
I mean, it couldn't be more on point. You know, one thing I train on in my sales training is the importance of developing obstacle immunity. You know, in sales, you don't think about hardship in sales, but one of the reasons sales is such a difficult profession, and obviously it's kind of the, the core foundation of who Grass University is, is because every day you're, you're going head first, lawn headed into rejection. And all human beings have a very massive fear of rejection. That's why public speaking is so difficult and why some people do hate it, or at least the, the fear is there for most people. I mean, they still say public speaking in some cases is people fear it more than death. But that all ties into rejection. And in order to be successful in sales, unfortunately, the job description requires you have to go head first into rejection day in and day out. And if you can't do that, it's going to be very hard to make a living. So you have to be prepared for that. You know, it's like a, a sales rep that's afraid to go into rejection is kind of like a pilot that's afraid of the plane going down. You know, you can't let that hinder you from doing what's necessary to fly. Um, if you ever expect to take flight in the sales profession, you got to be able to go 100% into it. So, and, and that's the game that we're in as well is, you know, once you have that story and that core foundation of something that you can offer other people, that's the hub of the wheel for us, the hub of a bicycle wheel. All the spokes are different ways that we can deliver that same message. It doesn't matter whether it's a podcast, a course, or a keynote, or a book. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we want to get that uh, thought into the minds of as many people as we can. And, you know, as I mean, obviously, there's people out there, we'd love to work with you guys. And if there's anyone out there who we can, um, you know, help with what we uh, have to offer, then, you know, we're here. So Yeah. So on that topic, obviously, you have your book Born to Fly on Audible, they can obviously, of course, purchase the hard copy of the book. But if someone wants to get in contact with you, or if there's an owner or manager watching this, they want to bring you on as a special guest speaker, I guess, what is the best way for them to, to reach you? They can email me directly at ryan at ryancampbell.co. CEO, it's not .com. I can't, I can't afford the M yet. That's in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, but the website is www.ryancampbell.co.co. Uh, that's, uh, it's a portal. It, it'll give you all the information that'll allow you to contact me directly or contact, um, you know, my management team. And, and uh, whether it's virtual or whether it's in person, you know, uh, as the world opens up, we're, we're here to help, so. You know, like you said, it never gets easy to, to share with folks, I'm sure. And, you know, we're grateful that you gave us the opportunity to, to share with our viewers. And, uh, you know, make sure you take advantage of that. Uh, definitely do your research on Ryan Campbell. He's got an amazing story. Listen to his audio book. I'm listening to it on the drives. It's, I mean, just the story of the flight around the world, the amount of planning that goes into it. It's like, it's so, it's so crazy. All the little details of the flight. I'm just like, oh, you can just hop in a plane and start flying. No, I mean, there's so much to it. And, you know, obviously that's kind of like life, right? Um, there's a lot of little things that we have to plan for and account for, and there's a lot of unforeseen things that are going to happen. So, but yeah, so again, another great podcast, episode 12 of Yes, I Am a Closer. I appreciate Ryan Campbell for, of course, giving us uh, so much of his time. And as always here at Grasso University, yes, you are a closer. Mm -hmm.